Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Chat with the Designers 2013. This is your host, George N2APB, along with co-host Joe N2CX. And uh, tonight, you are going to be treated to a really special show, as we do every time. But this is uh, this is going to be a fun one, and it's kind of back to basics uh, concerning... Uh, Analyze this, and we were taking a little bit of a different tack based on a lot of the feedback that uh, you guys and podcast listeners uh, provided along the way, and <clears throat> and uh, we're going to have some fun. So this is Chat with the Designers, your live, online, interactive weekly magazine for hams, home brewers, experimenters across the fruited plains of the world, and uh, we're here every other Tuesday at uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, which is at this point. Yeah, we're back to zero one hundred Zulu. Also, time for a little story here. I think uh, I found some time between the holidays to be very uh, relaxing in in a manner that is uh, a little unconventional. I I, I had a terrible bout with the flu, and uh, just still getting over it just a bit, but but certainly feeling much better. But during the holiday, I was I was down here in a shack, dripping all over the place, and I, I was on some pills that were. To beat the band, I'll tell you, I wasn't hurting at all. So I was doing all sorts of soldering and, and arranging and designing and PCB layout. And I was also doing some calibrating of some receivers. And I had WWV. Um, actually, it might have been CHU, Canada. I can't recall which. <laughs> Literally, I cannot recall. But what I do recall is that having the time channel on uh, forever, it seemed, and I'd be hearing the time, you know, click, 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 time, you know, uh, 20 hours, 13 minutes, coordinated universal time, Boop. click, click, click. You all have heard that. Well, I had that thing going unbeknownst to me in my subconscious, I guess. I, I knew it, but it was going for hours on end. And I'll tell you, if you've ever thought that time is flying by, try that. You, you, you get immune to it other than hearing Every single minute passed by, uh, like you blink your eye, and it's the next minute. So that was the fastest period of time I've ever had on the bench. And and uh, I think it's only something, and the reason I mention it here is that I think it's only something that we home brewers can really appreciate, is uh, we're using these kinds of uh, time signals and spending time engrossed on, on the bench. But that's what we do, that's what we love, and that's why we're here tonight. Um, so tonight's program is about the flexible signal source. Joe and I thought that we would come back to uh, basics. And, uh, you know, we've covered a lot of the uh, the basics of, of, of homebrewing and tools and projects and techniques and things like that. And, and we'll cover more yet. We'll cover some others that were very popular again. Um, but we also wanted to now start focusing a little bit now in the design areas more so. And we've had a lot of good feedback concerning the Analyze This series. We would take a, a given circuit and uh, essentially dissect it and talk about the components and why the configuration, what do you have to watch out for, um, <clears throat> why this particular value, uh, what's the function of this sub-circuit, what's the output impedance, how does one match it effectively to get power transfers just right, all the kind of things that, that we're interested in while looking at the circuits and such on the board, on the whiteboard. And again, hopefully everybody's got the whiteboard up. Uh, the link has been shown there in the uh, 
and all the invites and it's from our standard home page you can get to it as well as um, Joe posted it on the uh, in the chat section so we wanted to continue this this analyze this uh, series and make it real time we wanted to take a design that, that we've got really on the books right now it's not complete and uh, but it is quite active and we wanted to share with you our process of going through it and using these very techniques that we review essentially every time that we meet here and chat with the designers and show you how it's actually put it into process um, and the topic of course is a signal source we've actually talked about signal sources in the past 8640B a signal generator and a, there was a little VFO project by Wes Hayward W7ZOI that we focused on during the analyze this uh, one of our previous analyze this is and uh, it uh, it is quite good and, and and useful here is a technique that we're going to be talking about tonight called fractional n synthesis that is just fascinating if you're like Joe and me we've heard about this for years and years and I'll speak for myself um, um, I've never paid too much attention to it and there man there's a really good uh, feature article in QEX oh, I don't know there are actually several of them back in 2003 and maybe it was revisited since then and I always put it off to the side and put a paper clip on it and said I'm gonna build myself one of those and understand it never got around to it <clears throat> I got around to it now so what we're doing is part of another project that we're really not going to talk too much about because this is a considered a, a plug-in if you will a little sub module that's going to provide a uh, flexible signal source function and um, it's based on the use of a fractional end synthesizer chip a very powerful one a very popular one it's not too expensive but it's not dirt cheap but you take that component you add uh, uh, the usual microcontroller and a, a pretty darn cool display we'll talk about some of this and uh, some uh, I forgot what Joe called it some uh, uh, popcorn chips chips that are inexpensive fast uh, and and switching uh, good switchers and we're going to incorporate some techniques that we've talked about in the past as far as attenuation um, pi pad attenuators um, that are used in uh, uh, switch attenuators we're going to talk about low signal levels. We talked about that in the past. So we're bringing together a number of concepts in the, in this particular design, and we're going to take you right along with this design with us, and uh, kind of show you what we have so far, what some of our challenges are, and maybe in the future weeks we'll be able to talk about our progress and and then ultimately um, uncover the uh, the whole uh, cat, as it were, and kind of show what we've been. Uh, uh, scheming in the background and maybe some of you would like to play along with that too so Joe um, want to add to you know add to that a little bit as far as like uh, signal sources or is it a signal generator is it uh, is it a high quality you know what's the difference between the two a good could quality of the signal be um, one of the factors could stability be a factor could a could it be a square wave versus a sine wave? Could that be a difference, or is it all in the in the uh, in the eyes of the beholder? Go ahead. In the eyes of the beholder, eh? Very good, George. 
Yeah, we have uh, actually on the whiteboard some examples of uh, both some signal sources and some uh, signal generators. Um, signal generators primarily are used to uh, generate a, a known frequency, uh, controllable frequency, uh, with good signal characteristics. Uh, that is low noise, good stability, and uh, predictability. On the other hand, uh, and, and they tend to be um, expensive, um, complicated, difficult to produce. Uh, some of the examples we have here on the uh, on the whiteboard are, uh, for example, the AA908 antenna analyzer has a uh, uh, direct digital synthesizer in it. It can be used as a, a signal source, a signal generator that uh, has some pretty good characteristics. There's also some lab-grade test equipment shown, both uh, uh, analog and digital, some signal generators that uh, produce uh, calibrated output levels of known frequency with predictable, um, uh, predictable characteristics. On the other hand, there are a couple pieces shown in the, uh, in the whiteboard, particularly um, two by Elecraft. Um, uh, that uh, produce that are signal sources that produce a uh, signal of um, known frequency with a, um, a reasonable um, certainty of the output level and the um, uh, output purity. Uh, they're used primarily for injecting into, say, a receiver to see approximately how sensitive it is and uh, knowing that uh, you're receiving on the right frequency. And of course, there, there are grades of complexity for doing that. But it's, it's a quick check to give you a, a good idea of what's going on, as opposed to um, a lab-grade instrument that is dead certain and uh, significantly more complicated. What we're striving for here is kind of a balance between the two. Something that's pretty good overall, has a good predictable characteristics, and is programmable, um, which is an important thing. Something that's easy to... Uh, set to the, the proper characteristics, and um, there will be a cut above just a, uh, a switched crystal oscillator, something you can set on a number of frequencies and set to um, deterministic uh, uh, output levels. Uh, but on the other hand, not, not com complex to the point of uh, costing thousands of dollars and taking up half your bench space. So that's the goal. Um, and I'll let George uh, go back to the... Uh, the basics of what's going to be the heart of it all. Yeah, and and before we actually get into that, Joe, you know, I we put the the uses of a signal generator at the very bottom of the page, and chances are we won't even get to that far, or won't be able to do it justice. But I thought that uh, maybe we could chat for a moment about that, uh, the uses of signal generators, the signal sources, and. Uh, to put it in perspective, you know, why do you want one of these things? And sometimes it's obvious, and sometimes it's not. And we could almost take on a on a uh, an item by item basis of you know each of these photos represent a different use case, including that one down in the lower left hand corner. Now that's not my bench this time, but it looks equally uh, equally crowded and, and crammed up and all of that. Uh, but the point being there, I mean. The more measurement instruments that you have, um, the chances are the more you're going to find that you want and you need. But it's it's really fun. And again, this is test equipment has been a kind of a a sideline hobby of mine and an avocation of Joe's 
um, and for years and, and measuring things, adjusting things, determining its behavior is all part of uh, the part of being a, an electronics designer because you can take a, a cookbook schematic, connect up the parts and apply power and is it going to work? Well, I've had an occasion or two when it has worked and I go merrily on my way to the next step. But nine times out of ten, it doesn't work. And why doesn't it work is a challenge that we homebrewers always see on the bench. And there are many factors that can uh, that can uh, impact that, from grounding to uh, leakage to noise to not having power, uh, basic things like that. But finding out why it's not working is, is how do they say it, the joy is in the journey? Now, you can't have too much joy. Uh, you got to have some things work um, pretty quickly in order to make some progress. But the more you can measure equipment uh, or the, your your projects with this various equipment, uh, the better. So, Joe, maybe start uh, start in the upper left-hand corner, and we'll alternate going back and forth as far as maybe what, what are some of the applications that these uh, these little pieces of test equipment uh, do for us. I'm glad you said we'll alternate because um, I'm not familiar with a couple of them. Okay, in the upper left-hand corner of the um, of the whiteboard is a small printed circuit board. It's probably um, two by four or three by five inches, something um, that ilk. You can see it uses a um, a nine volt battery on there. The output is a BNC connector. It's a uh, a signal source from Alicraft, um, which has um, uh, a couple output frequencies. It has a crystal controlled oscillator in there that you can switch to several of the um, uh, popular QRP frequencies. As I recall, two of them would be um, 7040 and 14.06 megahertz. Produces an output uh, which is, um, I'm looking at the right board, produces an output that um, uh, has, uh, as I recall, two output levels, uh, approximately S9 and S0, so that uh, you can you can know with dead certainty uh, what frequency you're on, and approximately the um, uh, the sensitivity of your receiver. Uh, not terribly sophisticated, not tunable, but uh, very good for a quick check of a receiver. And on to you for the mystery circuit uh, in the middle of the top. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I just tried to figure out what that was too. I looked at the name of the photo, you know, by clicking properties, and it just says signal source uh, six. I have no idea what it was to tell you the truth. I got it for a reason, but chances are it's a signal generator of some sort with a nice SM SMA output that uh, is used for something. But let's move over to the Micro 908. Actually, it's a prototype of the Micro 908 on the right. That yellow-faced, uh, yellow-faced piece of uh, equipment. Now you all know that that that's an antenna analyzer, and and actually the way that it works is it takes a signal source, a, a low-power signal source, and it pumps it out the uh, up the antenna feed line, and it measures the response, the reflections coming back, and it does some computations. So there's a signal source for you, and and actually measuring a, a use use case for a signal source and measuring. An antenna system by measuring reflection um, and comparing it to the forward uh, transmission. 
And it can also be used as a standalone signal uh, source, as, as I do very often, as many of us do, just from the standpoint of any old DDS is often used as a as a signal source on the bench, when, especially for RF, it's very convenient. But of course, it's low power. Um, very, you know, this uh, the Micro 908 gives you only four volts peak to peak maximum, which is what about 40 milliwatts. And um, there's not too much uh, you know, transmitting you're going to do, but you could also transmit that, key it on and off. You could key it on and off while listening to a receiver, listening to the signal in a receiver, and voila, you've got yourself a code practice oscillator. So uh, there's there's a couple of uh, um, uses for that. Um, the one in the next one down, lower left-hand corner, sorry, the, the row two, left-hand side, is the Logimetrics. Um, it's sort of similar to the one in the, in the bottom right, which is the HP8640B. It produces a wonderfully pure uh, sine wave that uh, can be dialed anywhere from... You know, zero hertz up to, um, oh, golly, uh, these, I think, are go to the, uh, well, they go up into uh, HF and sometimes VHF. So those produce um, um, produce nice sine waves, which is different than the XG3 from Elecraft, which does square waves. Joe, do you want to describe the, uh, the pitfalls, but also the, uh, the positives about uh about square waves test signals. Sure, that's the, uh, the device that's shown in the center of the uh, second row uh, with someone's hand holding it, and I suspect it might be George. It's not sure. Um, it's a um, it's a device with a uh, a clock generator in there that generates a square wave. Uh, as it comes stock, it's capable of generating an output on each of the uh, HF bands from 1.8 uh, megahertz up through 144, in other words, 160 meters to 2 meters, with uh, several different output levels. Um, can be programmed through an external port for other frequencies as well. Um, it is indeed a uh, square wave output. Um, it has some attenuators in there and an amplifier to um, give pretty good um, uh, output level uh, determination at the fundamental frequency. The downside of using a, a square wave generator like this, not uh, cleaning it up all, is that the harmonics are uh, present as well. So, since it is a square wave, the even harmonics are pretty much balanced out. But the odd harmonics, and the numbers are in the, uh, the white pages later, but for example, the um, third harmonic, the uh, triple the fundamental frequency is down only about 10 dB, and then uh, the fifth harmonic is down something like uh, 15 dB, and, and the seventh harmonic is down a little more. It's, an, it's um, very usable for checking a receiver sensitivity uh, or for um, measuring um, whether or not you're on frequency, you're receiving a given frequency. Um, using it for very precision things like measuring filters, um, doesn't always work too well because the harmonics get in the way. Um, very handy, simple thing to do a quick check on the bench. There are a number of other uses we'll discuss uh, um, in, in our discussion of our instrument later. But um, it, it's a very handy little goodie. Um, to the right of that, going back to George's uh, uh, current uh, fad in ham radio, 
is a, a Bowdoin Banker signal generator, which is a um, uh, vacuum tube, a hollow state oscillator, with um, with a dial for um, showing the frequency. It uh, it gets you close in frequency, um, and it covers at least below the broadcast band, probably from 455 kilohertz up to the low VHF. Not real stable. Uh, it's not bad for uh, doing quick checks again. Um, one of the downsides, though, is that the output level is set by a potentiometer. So it doesn't go very low, um, uh, <laughs> probably in the millivolts. So it's not good for real sensitive measurements. But um, if you've got no signal generator, it's pretty good. One other nice feature it has, though, is it has an a built-in AM um, source. So if you were using it back in the vacuum tube AM receiver days, it would be very good for that. And the bottom row is a lot more sophisticated. Uh, back to George for the the uh, high-priced sophisticated test equipment. Would that be the, uh, are you referring to, which one are you referring to, Joe? All three on the bottom. The one that says 21 megahertz or uh, 21 and 10? Um, yeah, I suppose. Is that not a signal generator on the bottom? Yeah, um, it's a homebrew, it looks like. Um, I don't have the details on that. But it looks like it's a homebrew signal generator that uses the AQRP um, frequency generator. I forgot what uh, Case and John called it, but you'll, you might recognize that that's their long display with uh, uh, register number 21 showing that is uh, one of the frequencies of 10.000000 megahertz. Um, and the frequency counter just above that is, is measuring that 10 megahertz frequency, or pretty close to it. And again, the ones uh, on the bench below I can't even see, but I was making a point of uh, all the cool test equipment that we can have. Um, and a, kind of a point I, um, that that was implied with the boat anchor stuff, the hollow state uh, that Joe was talking about, the um, um, the stability. We might have sine waves back then, but actually, because of uh, uh, because of the, the some of the equipment that produced these sine waves didn't produce pure sine waves as much, and the sine waves were not too siny, and and uh, they were probably good enough. Uh, for the job, not as nice as today's DDS frequency uh, uh, signal sources. So, hey, Joe, here's a quick question for you while we're at it, before we transition on to some of the technical stuff, more technical stuff, is uh, supposing you've got something like the uh, the, K the, XJ, the XG3 producing, a, producing a nice square waves, and uh, why couldn't you clean up those square waves and just kind of put an LPF on there, a low-pass filter, and end up with, uh, um, uh, at least within a certain band of signals, a nice uh, sine wave signal source and get rid of a lot of the problems that you, you went through as far as harmonics and such. Well, the real reason is that you'd need so many filters. Um, the hand bands are basically um, uh, arranged in a two-to-one um, ratio. Close, not exactly. What that means is that uh, you can basically cover only two two bands with one filter. So to cover um, um, the HF band from uh, 1.8 to 30 megahertz, you would need six filters. Um, 
you don't have to worry about the uh, second harmonic getting through because they're attenuated with a square wave. You have to attenuate the third harmonic. So at any rate, the um, problem, problem with that is it's doable, but you need a, a whole other box of uh, filters to get uh, the signal clean enough. Good. You took my bait. Thanks for uh, explaining that. Then how is it then a standard implementation of a DDS frequency generator, which has a, a roll-off on its LPF somewhere around uh, uh, 60 megahertz or so, is able to suffice for signals less than 60 megahertz? Because the uh, – <laughs> boy, you're feeding – you're loving me softballs here, pal. Um, the DDS – has a stepwise approximation of a sine wave, and um, it, it has enough uh, enough. The steps are high enough frequency that a low-pass filter can roll them off without and produce a pretty clean sine wave uh, without having appreciable uh, um, harmonic content from the uh, from the steps of uh, generating a sine wave. <laughs> okay, good. I knew that uh, that would be coming up in, in people's minds. But at this point here, let's let's take a quick break and see if uh, anybody has any questions about the signal generators, the signal sources, and some of the principles or the issues that we're trying to control here, whether it be harmonic content, signal purity, um, frequency extremes, uh, temperature stability, you name it. Um, how about it? Anybody have any questions so far? You want another softball? Ah, uh, pitch it. In the upper left-hand corner, uh, the Elecraft thing says it's a noise generator. Why would somebody want a piece of equipment that just generates noise? Go ahead, Joe. Your eyes are better than mine. I thought it was the Elecraft XG1. There's very good, uh, several very good reasons. Um, it can be used, and Elecraft uh, has some good app notes um, in the K2 section. It can be used to um, look at a, um, in a receiver to look at uh, filters. You can use a program called Spectrogram to look at the audio output of the receiver. And if you pass wideband noise, which consists of all frequencies, through it, um, you see the audio spectrum of a filter. So you can see the shape of it. It's also useful, quite useful, in um, uh, a couple other applications. It is a, a good thing for um, uh, measuring uh, RF filters in addition if you use it in conjunction with a signal generator rather than having, a, a, that is a tracking generator, with a uh, spectrum analyzer since it generates basically all frequencies, we'll say, um, it produces um, fairly flat output across, uh, say, HF, so that you can look at uh, filter response with it. And one of the uses, uh, other uses has been made quite a bit of, particularly in ham circles, is using it as a signal source for what's called a noise bridge, where you have a um, an adjustable uh, RC bridge. Uh, you connect an antenna to it, and you can hear the, you can tell when the bridge is balanced by uh, listening with a receiver to the output of the bridge. And when you have the, uh, the output nulled at a given frequency, it says that the, uh, the adjusting components in the bridge um, have, uh, have nulled it. 
and you can read from the uh, the dials on the instrument to tell what the equivalent R and C are um, at the uh, frequency. Good for measuring antennas, um, uh, antenna traps, and um, uh, at least low impedance RF components. Yeah, and, uh, and indeed that is a, that was a good catch. I, I hadn't noticed it. I thought it was the SG one as well when I when I grabbed it. Um, but another example, another um, another uh, perhaps a, um, a a very pedestrian example of how you can use or the purpose of a noise generator in order to characterize, let's say, a low pass filter. I mean, consider that uh, the signal that you're you're squirting out is is water out of a hose with a really wide uh, you know, spray on it. So it's containing a very wide spray of uh, wide band of frequencies, wide, wide spray. And you're holding in front of that, you're shooting that water, wide spray of water through a, uh, let's call it a, a wall with a hole in it, your, your low pass filter um, or your band pass filter, actually. So you, the wide spray that you're shooting at the wall, only a small portion is getting through that because of a small hole in there because um, the the wall itself is blocking everything else and if you're able to look at that on a uh, on the other side of the wall and actually see the water that's coming out you can um, measure the characteristics of that hole or coming back to electrical analogies you can determine um, what the characteristic of a filter is at a glance using a spectrogram uh, spectrograph type of program and uh, and I'm actually holding from any other example that Joe had given. I'm I'm actually holding my in my hot little hand here uh, my Palomar RX noise bridge, and I've had this thing for like eons, and it does just what Joe said with two nulls, um, uh, with, with two adjustments, I can null out the noise um, that is ultimately uh, uh, being injected to the signal uh, to the antenna system, and I can determine what the R and the X value is of that antenna system, the complex impedance, because all of the different frequencies are being shot at once through it, and then I'm nulling out at a given uh, uh, to balance out what the antenna has uh, is presenting on the other on the other port. So, anyways, lots of lots of good uh, good test equipment here. Let's let's get into the uh, into the meat of it uh, of the program, and that uh, has to do with fractional N synthesis, and that brings us down to the CS2000 chip which uh, you see below the pictures here. And um, it's, uh, oh gosh, I guess it's an 8-pin SOIC, and at least the package that, that we're using. 10-pin. Uh, 10-pin, okay, very, a little bit less common, but nonetheless, it's, a, it's, a, it's an SOIC. It takes in the frequency, um, kind of, uh, the reference frequency, which is, is uh, um, your, your input clock. It has a reference clock. Uh, input, which those two are very important as far as uh, the process of fractional end synthesis. Think VCO and then the divided down and, and PLL output is the result that comes out. Um, but this chip, um, again, is pretty inexpensive and it uh, provides some really, really uh, useful characteristics. Now, fractional end synthesizers, and I'm not going to attempt to go into it to the level of detail that will describe it in engineering terms um, to the nth degree, but um, bottom line is that it takes a, a the divisor the division ratio of uh, the two frequencies is able to 
If you have a, a reference frequency, a VCO that is divided down, you take a VCO input and you divide that down, let's say 10 megahertz, and you divide that by, by uh, um, 100, you're going to end up with 10 kilohertz, if I have my numbers right, as a kind of an internal reference number. And then you can multiply that by an integer to get whatever frequency that you want as a multiple of that 10 kilohertz uh, frequency. And, and that becomes essentially like a step size. If you take n times 1, if you, if you take n times 10 kilohertz, and then ultimately that'll give you a, uh, an output frequency that has uh, uh, 10 kilohertz steps. You can take it smaller um, or, or larger. But you, bottom line is that you do it in integers. What happens if you wanted uh, 15, or in this case here, 10 point, um, if I did 10 megahertz, I, I think I started with 1 megahertz, and you had uh, uh, 10 kilohertz, you would have 10.01 would be your ultimate frequency that you are generating. The nearest frequency to that you could generate using integer math would be 10.02. In other words, two times your divided down frequency reference. Um, but what happens if you, instead of 10.01 megahertz, you wanted 10.015? Well, you just can't do it with just regular old multiplication, integer math. But you would need to go to fractional N technology. Now, um, this has been around for a long time. And... Um, there's a simple representation or a simple explanation of it, and I'll, I'll kind of do that right now. But if you alternated between um, an N of 1, which gives is a 10 kilohertz adder, and an N is equal to 2, which is, a, um, which is an adder of, of uh, 20 kilohertz, and you alternated back and forth so often, or pretty quickly actually, the average that you're phase lock loop is going to lock onto over time through the appropriate filtering is going to be indeed 1.015 megahertz. So you're taking that, that 10 kilohertz step that we talked about, and instead of multiplying it by just one or by just two, you're averaging very quickly between one and two. And then the average frequency that's being generated is the 15 kilohertz step size on top of your, uh, your main VCO. So, uh, the faster that uh, uh, that you the, the the rate at which you switch back and forth can determine where uh, it can maybe be 14 kilohertz adder to your uh, to your base VCO. So it would produce 1.014. If you produced more time or more frequency, uh, uh, more hits to using the uh, a um, tw the 20 the, the n is equal to two or 20 kilohertz, you would have uh, 20 kilohertz being generated more often than 10 kilohertz as the adder. And the average, average between those, if it's biased more toward 20 kilohertz, might be on the order of 17 kilohertz. So that becomes 1.017 kilohertz. We're dealing with, it. we're essentially um, generating the fraction. We're dealing with a fraction. And there's all sorts of ways to look at this and from uh, the hardware perspective, as far as carries and in the digital world of producing carries and adders, adding registers, and when you get a carry out. And, um, but the bottom line is that you're alternating back and forth between two divisors, divisors in order to generate an average 
step size, which is different than what you would get with just using an integer value of 1 or 2 or 10 or, or whatever you might want to have uh, uh, a need for. And then um, that, that's the principle. Now, as you might think, and this is where I'm going to end it. I'm not going to get any deeper than this. But as you might think, when you dither, when you change your step sizes like I'm talking about, there are other sidebands and other noise artifacts that come about from uh, such a generation. You can almost think of uh, the, uh, the art of uh, you know, the science of modulation. And there are other spurious signals that are generated when you change the loop frequency or the um, uh, the adder frequencies like I'm talking about. And about 1984, there's a guy who invented, uh, oh gosh, what was, I have it written down here someplace. The guy who invented, uh, uh, oh, there it is, Marconi Instruments is a very popular um, and, and good quality instrumentation line. And the guy's name is uh, John Wells. In 1984, he devised a way to cancel out those artifacts, or actually what he did. This is so cool. I, I, you will really, and everything I'm talking about here, I think, will come together if you just read the first few, oh, I don't know, maybe the first page of the one or the two or the three references that we give at the bottom of the whiteboard. And I think you'll really enjoy it too and you understand it. But John Marcon, or John, uh, John Wells of Marconi Instruments, back in 1984, decided, well, instead of switching back and forth at the rates that I sort of described a moment ago, what he's going to do is take the artifacts from that, uh, switching back and forth, and spread it out across a wider spectrum, essentially, and thus diffuse the effect of the um, of the phase noise and such that is uh, that's ultimately created in there. And it worked out really well, such that today those techniques are used in chips, such as the CS2000, uh, and other types of uh, FPGA and uh, digital implementations of phase lock loops and fractional end synthesizers that that really produce some darn good results, so that you can get with a you know with your loop with a single loop, and not, you don't have to go to double loop in order to uh, uh, create some of the, the the good quality low signal wide band um, fast slew rate. Uh, in other words, the the signals can change pretty quickly. And your loop constants don't have to be uh, 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 too exorbitant. And you can have nice uh, reduced jitter types of signals. You would take a chip like the CS2000 and you would uh, put into it a nice clean reference clock. And then you would put a, um, a, another clock in it, program the chip in order to do that um, the, the proper divide, division like I was uh, explaining. And then it will indeed generate Anything that uh, you want, and in this case here, the PLL output has a range of 6 to 75 megahertz. And then there are some other special tricks that could be done in order to extend that range a little bit more yet, which kind of makes it very popular for the cell phone, um, the cell phone technologies, or maybe not quite that high, but still uh, a wide range of uh, mobile consumer devices these days. Joe, did I speak too much out of line there, or any uh, anything that you want to whack me up the side of the head on? No, I certainly don't. One of the um, one of the other things, uh, augmentation. One of the others that is implemented in chips like this, in addition to the um, the pseudo noise um, techniques to get the divide by n, is that they use a, a digital phase lock loop 
um, as part of the system to do cleanup of any um, uh, of some of the remaining artifacts to give you a uh, much cleaner output. And it's really nice to have it all on one digital chip rather than uh, on a big uh, breadboard that's uh, long and six inches wide as, uh, as I've had to do in the past. Yeah, indeed, and we've got another. We've got a couple of prototypes of this uh, this uh, flexible signal source going right now. Um, um, oh man, JJ, what's the uh, what is the name of the chip on that other project that we're working on that takes the 10 megahertz uh, signal and, and cleans it up? It uh, it disciplines it. Do you recall the name of that PLL chip? Um, hmm. Yeah, I have to think about it. Uh, let me think. All right, I'm searching for my notes here. But nonetheless, it's the same kind of principles. Um, and uh, we're, we're kind of evaluating the, the, the ones that are going to be better to use uh, ultimately long term for our projects. And we're looking at a kind of a base project that can be used in multiple implementations. And I think we're going to see an outgrowth of it. So let's kind of get down. To, well, well, maybe well, let's well, take maybe a break. Yeah, uh, say again, uh, Joe? Say again, Joe? Yeah, I think it's an analog device. It's an ADI um, phase lock. It's it's not an expensive one. And um, ADI, I believe, makes it. Yeah, it's an ADI I 9000. Uh, now that you say that, I just can't, uh, I don't recall that. Um, By the way, ADI is Analog Devices Incorporated, for those who might not know. Aha, which is AHA which is an exclamation of, aha. Um, anybody else have um, any, before we kind of get down to some more of the, the technical, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, we're going to talk a little bit about part selection, some of the criteria. Um, that, that's kind of fun that we as designers look through, but does anybody have any questions? Now, I know uh, somebody mentioned in the, in the warm-up session here before we started the show that this is a heck of a topic. A strong, a very technical topic to uh, to tackle, but I think um, the toughness is in the chip. And if you follow the chip specs and you use the chip like it's supposed to be, and you follow the reference designs, you almost don't need to know the details of fractional lens synthesis in order to make it work. Um, I just find it fascinating to to understand how the chip and the circuits are working, which again is part of the analyze this. Uh, um, Gestalt that we've got for uh, for the program, Joe. Um, let's look at the DigiKey parts page now. I, I I included this thing here tonight because I thought you know you and I, Joe, we deal with this every day. Um, it seems we go grab a part and what kind of a part is it? Is it the right thing? What's the voltage range? What's the temperature range? Uh, is it in stock? I mean, in this snapshot of the part page for this particular part says volumes and I'm wondering if you just kind of very quickly don't no need to go into great depth but just kind of sweep across this this page the DigiKey parts page and um, explain for somebody who has not yet gone to a DigiKey a DigiKey part page and uh, to select a part and might have been intimidated by it and and tell us what you see in this Alrighty, yeah it is a very common thing you you can really get spoiled after you've done this a couple of times with all the information that's available. And uh, DigiKey is a good example of somebody who does it well. Um, 
the first thing that intrigues me on, on the DigiKey uh, page here is they tell you whether they stock it or not. And it just happens that this happens to be a non-stock part by DigiKey, which means they don't keep them. Uh, they, they claim that they don't keep them in stock. However, it's uh, pretty interesting because if you look down the way a little bit, it says quantity available. DigiKey stock 96 can ship immediately. What this tells me is that they don't intend to stock it in the future. They have some now and they'll sell them out. But in the future, if you want to buy it from them, they will get it for you, but they don't carry them in stock every day. It might take a couple of weeks for them to get them. But um, it shows uh, the, their own internal part number, the manufacturer, manufacturer's part number description. Uh, and then uh, to the right-hand side of the top of the page, it, it shows you, depending on how many you buy, what the, uh, what the price per unit is going to be so that uh, you get some idea of um, how much it's going to be. For example, this one in single quantities is $9.64. Not bad. And if you buy 100 of them, it goes down to $6.78. To the right-hand side is a, um, a picture um, uh, rep for representation only, just to give you an idea of what the chip looks like, the physical, um, physical characteristics of the chip. Um, they have a, a, uh, a box to click on for um, uh, the um, data sheets for it so you can get much more detailed information and some categorical information. Then a description, a functional description, fractional, I won't read all of it, but fractional synthesizer, uh, PLL, yes, input clock, output clock, number of circuits, and then some other technical information. And in addition, at the bottom of that page, they also indicate that um, there are evaluation uh, boards available, which can be very handy if you uh, if you don't want to just uh, plop the thing on a uh, on your own board and do a printed circuit board. The manufacturer makes evaluation boards available, which contain the chip, so that you can get the thing working and you can check it out with um, very little uh, extra work on your part. A uh, very, very handy thing to do, and uh, it's nice to have a snapshot of this information all available at your fingertips. One of the good things that uh, uh, parts distributors do these days, and uh, I don't have any interest in DigiKey other than uh, the fact that I use them quite a bit because they're so convenient. Oh, yeah, indeed. Uh, Mauser does a good job too. Although, frankly, I find Mauser pages a bit slow to come up. I don't know if it's just me or the browser that I have is having difficulty representing their all of their images and so on. But uh, DigiKey is very snappy, responsive. Frankly, DigiKey, frankly, DigiKey. ships a little bit more um, reliably. When I, I, I'm an immediate gratification, instant gratification kind of guy. I suspect some of you are here too. And I often order things at the last minute and need them right away. And DigiKey normally comes through faster than uh, than Mauser uh, when it comes up to the ordering deadline of of uh, nine uh, nine p.m. here on the Eastern Coast, which is eight p.m. out of their uh, Texas distribution house. JJ, did you have something? Uh, yeah, I was just going to add. I uh, I think DigiKey is the king of uh, parts, quick parts. I agree with you. Um, the one that, that's really come a long way is Newark. Newark had teamed up with uh, Element 14, and they're an amazing site. Uh, they have lots of tutorials. 
if you're trying to learn anything about uh, RF design and so forth, it's amazing. They put lots of tutorials out on uh, Element 14 slash NORC site. Very good. I was going to mention also, indeed, that uh, um, that, that NORC, um, um, and I guess NORC also is, oh, nuts, I've got a, I've got a reference page that I have. Farnell. Farnell, thank you. Exactly. You know what I was thinking of. Farnell from over in the UK. Ultimately, if they don't, if Newark here doesn't have the parts, they're able to pull from other sources. So you're right, guys. I think uh, Newark is, is indeed a good one. Dave Ott, did you have something? Go ahead. Yeah, uh, question. Does DigiKey still have the $25 minimum, or can you uh, pay below that? Um, Joe, I don't recall. Do you? I don't recall. I get so carried away if I want to buy some things from them. I always get over 25 bucks anyway. George? Yes, sir, Al. Uh, it came up on eham.com here recently, that very question, and uh, DigiKey has no minimum charge. So there you go. Thank you, guys. That's that's good to know. Like Joe, I mean, I get carried away. and Well, I actually save up my parts needs and so I can order them all at once, and it helps justify um, – it helps justify uh, the, the faster delivery that I might want, so that that's good. Another piece of information that's that's, that's really useful on this, Joe. I don't know if you covered it, but the, the price break. If you notice, the price per piece, uh, the units is in this case here is nine dollars and sixty four cents um, at twenty five pieces. If you order twenty five pieces, it drops down uh, a buck. You save a buck on it. And from normal home brewing, twenty five might be a good supply to have on your bench. Or if you can, you know, find some friends that you want to order with as well, um, save yourself a buck and or have the savings go for the uh, the shipping. Ultimately, it's it's a pretty good thing to have. Another good uh, piece of reference at the bottom of the page is normally it says uh, what other parts, other derivatives of the product is used with. In this case here, there's an evaluation board and a general purpose, uh, another kind of general purpose board, and um, so if you really like the chip and you want to do some experimenting, you can click on one of those links down there, in this case, 598-1572, and you would see a little board. Well, I don't know what the price would be, probably around 50 bucks or so, or whatever. But you got the board already built up. All you do is power it, and you can start your experimenting, which is kind of handy if you're in a learning mode. And the last point is the possible substitute. On the right-hand side, you see the little blue box to the right of the bigger box, and that says the possible you might want to use something else that's sort of like it. So if you're if you need more than 96 parts, or if this part is truly out of stock, um, you can try some other things, and they actually do the representation. Lastly, not shown here, but it's the phone number for DigiKey. These guys are really really helpful for hobbyists. If you have a question, um, chances are really good that they'll be able to answer it either directly from the salesperson, or they would tie in an apps engineer, applications engineer, or parts engineer, who would be able to suggest an alternate part or give you an answer about impedance, uh, form factor, whatever. It's just really a kind of a fun part of, um, of our doing our projects, and that's of uh, actually collecting all of the parts to create your parts list so you can order them. Okay, we're going to move along. Um, the next section on our 
whiteboard deals with uh, a lot of the a little bit of the description of the operation of uh, fractional end synthesis. I didn't even notice that I had it there. I, I've forgotten that I had it there, but I, hopefully it correlates to what I said um, um, on that topic a moment ago. And we're also going to switch. Uh, we're going to pass over the switching signals. There's a there's a jelly bean chip um, called the AS169, which is really inexpensive, and it's a great chip for switching signals and low low power, low insertion loss, um, three volt operation. It's just really a handy single pole double throw switch. And you'll see when we get to uh, the circuit diagram below that I'm going to ask Joe to look at in just a moment. Um, you'll see that we use it uh, liberally and able to switch in our attenuators uh, along the way. So let's get down to the actual, in the remaining minutes, let's go through the design. And uh, it's a conceptual block diagram. Um, the schematic is all hand-drawn and scribbles and so on, but this, this will suffice for now, and maybe we'll follow it up later with the actual Visio schematic that we, uh, that we uh, produce for our things. Um, I'll start it off just by describing the, uh, the control system, and then maybe Joe can take it from the uh, synthesizer forward uh, all the way to the output. Um, the kind of cool part about this project, one of the cool parts, is that this one here is using a, uh, we're starting to standardize, Joe and I and some of our designs, we're starting to standardize on, call it the next generation display. And there's a number of us hobbyists and experimenters that are doing this. No longer are we, are we dealing or excited about uh, character displays, um, the two lines of text that uh, is displayed in some of the projects in the past. No longer are we excited about the, uh, the graphic displays such as in the new PSK modem or the SDR cube that is 128 by 64 pixel resolution. That's kind of cool, um, but more resolution it produces finer lines, less jaggies, more information can be displayed. And frankly, we're getting a lot of these parts, these uh, what, these 250, these TFT, um, uh, thin film twist, uh, twist transistor, film, thin film transistor. Thank you. Um, displays are coming around kind of inexpensive, down in the $15 range, out of um, out of uh, China, and they, uh, on eBay, and they're really good quality. In fact. If you wanted to kind of slide down the page a little bit, you'll see a couple of shots of the prototype that we have. And uh, I'm working with somebody else. And is he here? No, he's not here tonight, but that's okay. He would recognize uh, some of these shots here. So we've got these this display here, which happens to be on the right hand showing. It's a, it's a bit of a um, what's called a hex dump and a hex ASCII dump. Um, monitor capability that we're building into the processor to give us the ability to debug and, and actually bring up the system uh, in a controlled manner. Just to, And it gives you a pretty good indication of uh, some of the graphic capabilities. Up at the top, you see a slider bar that if you kind of squint a little bit, you would probably be able to see the new PSK spectrum display uh, shown in that 0.5 to 2.5 spectrum width. And just imagine if there were bouncing bars that represented FFT type of transformations or your spectrograph. 
and uh, you can display other types of graphics um, on there. And shown on the left-hand side is the board, kind of like a different version of the board, but kind of collapsed. And, and it's just a really convenient, uh, good size. I think it's a, this one here is a 3.2-inch diameter, which is a pretty decent type of display for 15 bucks. So you get color. Um, oh, and did I mention this uh, touch screen? So some of our pride, many of our projects coming forward now are starting to have no controls, no knobs and such. At least not as many as we used to have because you can, uh, we can use soft keys as in display um, a word or a graphic on the, on the display. And by means of resistive touchpad that's overlaid on top of this display, the computer can read where your finger or your stylus is actually pressing and you can draw pictures, you can move characters, all with the appropriate software behind it, but uh, it provides a nice graphical user interface for uh, projects. And you can almost think of, uh, uh, in this case here, maybe uh, maybe uh, a phase noise plot, a spectral display of phase noise around a primary signal. Maybe you can think of like a GPS polar or a stellar representation of GPS uh, satellites that are overhead. I'm just just to give you a couple of ideas of things that might be done with this kind of kind of a display. But that's what we've got for the display controller, and we're using uh, um, our very favorite uh, DSPIC, DSPIC33F, which happens to be in some of our previous projects, and it's just a wonderful processor. We've got some good libraries built up on it. I mean, it has a USB controller. Gasp. No more RS-232. But this control this goes over to the computer for uploading of data, running some diagnostics, um, um, importing or exporting some uh, measured data, and um, provides some really good capabilities uh, uh, from a user standpoint. Joe, do you want to take the RF section? Certainly I will. One of the other things, uh, having the computer hooked up, allows you to do, George kind of uh, intimated, in another, uh, another light is that it allows you to um, use soft keys on the device that you can reprogram the function of so that uh, one device can serve multiple functions. All you have to do is um, have um, an external computer through the USB port configure it for a particular application you want, and it changes its whole character. And the beauty is that it's only software that changes. All right, the RF section um, consists starting out with the uh, CS2000 synthesizer, um, which generates a square, wo square wave of approximately um, 3 volts peak to peak. There's a uh, small um, attenuator in there, a resistive attenuator with a pod in there, so that you can exactly adjust the output level to calibrate the thing. And then there's a series of um, the uh, switches, the... Uh, AS169 switches, George mentioned, that switch in a series of um, attenuators to uh, reduce the signal level. And um, the, the, um, if you look carefully, the right hand, bottom right-hand side of the uh, picture, the uh, uh, block diagram on the uh, whiteboard, you'll see that um, in each block there are associated two of the, uh, the RF switches. Um, each is a single pole double throw, and each is ganged to another one so that it forms a double pole double throw 
to either switch in or switch out the, um, the components for each stage. The first stage shown there switches in either a 13 dB resistive attenuator, be one of the pi attenuators, or a 20 dB uh, uh, MIC, MMIC, microwave, uh, um, I forget what the other M is, monolithic microwave integrated circuit amplifier. So that you can either get gain or loss in that stage. And that's followed by two more attenuator sections to further attenuate the signal so that you can get um, four discrete levels between um, uh, one microvolt, uh, minus 107 dBm, and uh, zero dBm at the output connector. Also at the output, uh, there's a, um, we have it shown with some back-to-back uh, -back diodes. There's some protective circuitry so that if you inadvertently hook up uh, a signal generator or something to uh, to this device, the uh, diodes for a, a low overvoltage will um, will uh, uh, limit the voltage. Or if uh, the voltage gets too high, you'll fry the diodes and protect the rest of the circuitry. Kind of a, um, a cover your butt sort of thing. That uh, those of us who've used expensive signal generators with transceivers find that at some point you're going to transmit into the output of a signal generator. And it's always nice to have some sort of protective circuitry there so that you fry some inexpensive, easily replaced component rather than uh, the expensive signal generator. All right. The, um, that's as far as we're going to take the actual design tonight. Um, but based around the conceptual block diagram, based around the uh, the photo of photos of the of the prototypes that we're working with for the display, um, and uh, some of the concepts of how the this type of equipment is going to be used, I'm wondering if anybody has anything that they'd like to ask or has ask us to kind of drill into a little bit more. We've got a few minutes left over and we wanted to leave some time for this kind of discussion, interactive discussion. So uh, go ahead. The floor is yours. I'm always available. Well, yeah, you're, you're, you're go ahead, Rick. <laughs> uh, I was looking at the, uh, your single pole double throw uh, solid state switch there. Uh, and I remember in a previous project, uh, we, we did something very similar with resistors and uh, uh, plain old toggle switches. These things look like they would be a lot trickier to work with because they're not perfect isolation. And apparently they also have, uh, it says on the spec sheet, of, about a 0.4 dB insertion loss. And all of that's then got to be uh, uh, accounted somehow, right? Yeah, I'll pick that up. Certainly, uh, it does have to be accounted for. Nothing is perfect. Um, the beauty, and you do have to uh, allow for some uncertainty. Um, where we're using them is at the low end of their operating range, so they'll tend to have less loss than uh, the max, which would be uh, generally up the higher frequency range. You, there will be certainly some uncertainty, but by doing some uh, measurements of some typical devices, you can get a feel for what the attenuation can be, and you can tweak the attenuators to try to uh, take that into account to wash out a lot of the variability. One of the beauties of these switches is that, indeed, they are controllable by um, 
uh, external voltages. As I recall, it only takes about 20 microamps at 3 volts to switch them. So they work very, very well under computer control. They were designed for the um, cell phone industry. So they tend to be very cheap, and um, they're used as TR switches in the uh, um, cell phones. So they can handle about a watt of RF, uh, as well as handling uh, lower levels in a uh, very small, uh, fairly low-loss, predictable uh, performance uh, package. Yeah, that was going to be my next question about how much power they could dissipate. Yeah, they're rated for uh, something over a watt, but I think uh, the 1 dB compression point is uh, is 30 dBm or a watt. Most cell phones uh, produce about 600, uh, 600 milliwatts, so it's right in their ballpark. Thank you. And did I hear another question in there from somebody? Oh come on! There's got to be some other questions about this. Uh, let me let me see let me see a little bit of the discussion here, Joe. Um, low signal and handling proper handling of low signals. I mean, we're talking down around 100 dBm uh, on the, minus 100 dBm, uh, one microvolt or so. Um, pretty low. Uh, Pretty low level. I mean, you have to be careful about uh, how you actually bring, handle that on the on the board, and how you bring it out, and how you deal with it uh, while it's when it's out of the box, right? I've had nightmares over it, George. Yes, indeed, it is. It is an art to doing this properly. Um, when you have a a wide disparity in, in uh, signal levels in a given uh, circuit. Um, Little things like leakage across a PC board, some lack of shielding, or traces that run too closely together can uh, cause leakage around uh, some of the circuit blocks. So uh, it gets to be kind of an art in um, trying to lay things out properly to uh, arrange for some degree of shielding and attempting to keep everything at as low signal level as you can to, uh, to try to minimize the leakage. In the end, uh, you get as good as you can. Try to put it in a, uh, a metalized box if you can, and put in some uh, at least minimal shielding. Try to keep the input away from the output as best you can. But uh, it is indeed an art to uh, to do this and to get it in a small plastic box. Yeah, yeah. Challenge for the uh, the layout guy for sure. Um. And it seems to me, I'm looking at the diagram, I, I, I neglected to hang a, um, a crystal on the uh, CS2000 synthesizer chip. Um, but I, what I was going to do when I did that was also show that there's, a, if, you, if you had like an external input for an external reference, that would be the point at which it would get inserted. So there's, you can envision another line, another input line going into the CS2000 chip, which is your reference signal. And uh, uh, the degree of, of how good that reference signal is, is ultimately going to help the degree of goodness for the um, generated signal, the PLL generated signal on the, on the output. So that's another, uh, another factor in um, how the circuit is put together and, and how it works. 
Um, let's look uh, lastly again down at the down at the signal uses. I think we hit on a couple of them, Joe. But look, but looking at uh, looking at them, uh, um, the the one could one could use this circuit as a local oscillator. Can you comment on how stable it is relative to FCC specifications? That uh, I don't know if there is a stability if there is a spec on that from the FCC, but nonetheless. Um, how would it suffice as uh, a standalone transmitter or maybe as an LO for uh, a direct conversion? Yeah, it indeed could be used that way. I, I don't know for amateur use of any frequency stability uh, um, requirements from the FCC. If you get into weak signal work such as um, uh, PSK31, um, some of the fancy modulation techniques, PSK31, um, JT65, or any of the um, um, QRSS uh, things, certainly frequency stability would be uh, of interest. Uh, you could use this thing for, um, indeed, for a, uh, an LO for a, uh, uh, what do you call it, a, a direct conversion receiver where you're blasting signal into a mixer and the harmonics don't matter. So um, it wouldn't cause any problem at all there. For a transmitter, it certainly could be used. Um, generally speaking, in the transmitter, you'd have other filtering that would uh, remove the higher harmonics. Um, since as we've been working on the RF power cube that has been um, uh, brought to the fore, you need some very careful filtering. So indeed, it could be used as the basis for a, a signal source for a rig. And in fact, operating under computer control, it could be... Um, be pretty handy that way as well. Um, I've used something similar for um, fox hunts. I built a little um, uh, crystal oscillator to use for fox hunts that was a uh, square wave crystal oscillator um, and used that um, as a signal source and I used uh, a little bit of uh, low pass filtering and a resonant antenna to clean up any of the uh, harmonics. So this could be a, a handy, low-power little thing to use. Oxon transmitter, um, quite possibly in conjunction with external controller to do the keying. Um, lots of, uh, if you look through the list, uh, there are a lot of uh, little goody things that this could be uh, used uh, used for. And particularly, uh, as George pointed out, in conjunction with having some sort of computer control. It makes things a little, not uh, just sync purpose so that uh, you can use some creativity in uh, coming up uh, uh, new uses for it. some uh, things that are kind of off the wall, indeed. Talking about off the wall, I think I made you pucker up a little bit when I talked about uh, calibration, um, using this to calibrate RF meters or scopes and spectrum analyzers. Even though I put rough calibration, I think... Uh, I think your heart started skipping a beat a little bit about that. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, sometimes emotion can come through an email. Yeah, I did have a little pucker factor. The uh, It can be used for some rough, uh, uh, rough issues of amplitude. If you look at, um, go up on the whiteboard just a little bit under description, I have a square waves. 
Um, the output is a square wave, and uh, I won't go into real detail, but I just have some numbers there. Uh, the third harmonic of a square wave is about 10 dB down. Fifth harmonic is about 14 dB. Um, what that works out to in terms of voltage, however, um, a 10 dB decrease is about 3 to 1. So if you if you use a square wave and you have a third harmonic that's a third the voltage, in other words, uh, say you had one volt output, and you had a third harmonic that was 10 dB down, that would be about um, 30%. So you'd have uh, at least a 30% error in the peak-to-peak -peak amplitude. Uh, so for an untuned um, thing like a scope or a um, uh, RF uh, detector, it would get you in the ballpark, but um, uh, certainly uh, <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't be lab quality. On the other hand, for a spectrum analyzer where you can individually look at the, uh, uh, the individual circuit, the individual um, spectral components, um, you could just ignore the, uh, the harmonics and you'd get a good idea of, um, of the fundamental frequency uh, amplitude. So it has its uses. So you just have to be aware of uh, a man's got to know his limitations. Ah, uh, you little pucker. Uh, man, you took my, my quote there. That's my, uh, that's my uh, Clint Eastwood quote. And uh, have you seen, did you see the, um, the the question by Clint or the comment by Clint over in the text area, Joe? Uh, Clint writes, how about using an AD8307 log amp in a closed loop feedback with um, the supply current for the mimic, uh, the amplifier? to allow for calibrated and adjustable output level prior to the attenuators. I thought that was pretty cool. And I've never seen, <clears throat> I've not seen such a, uh, um, a, um, a control circuit on a mimic. Now, those of you um, who are into, have used a mimic before, know that the supply line is the way that you control the gain of, of a mimic device. It's a very cool device. You've got to be careful on layout because it tends to oscillate way up in the UHF range. But if you, if you lay it out well, it's a very solid uh, type of design. But um, Joe, have you considered that kind of a, uh, ever considered that kind of a way to control a uh, level? No, I'd not considered it. That is a clever way of doing it because as you point out, the operating current of the mimic sets the, um, sets the gain. And in fact, just looking back through that, I didn't look back through everything. There has been so much chatter there, but I did not see that. Um, that's, a, that's a good suggestion. Certainly, that's something that could be implemented without um, too much difficulty. I have to keep that in mind. Thank you, Clint. Yeah, and uh, yeah, Clint does not have a microphone, which is why which is why he entered it uh, by text, and I'm just immediately picking it up here. But this also brings to mind, Joe, the control feedback method that we use for, or that we attempt to use for uh, ALC with a DDS chip, with current control of the RSET line in a sort of a similar manner. Um, what Clint didn't describe, or at least what I'm kind of taking off, an offshoot of, is that uh, um, it could be an ALC kind of thing too. So depending on how the signal varies, the the signal coming from the uh, the amplifier, the part of the calibration from, coming from the CS2000, 
part of the calibration could be in essentially setting the, the feedback loop on that uh, for that mimic to provide a solid constant uh, level independent of uh, frequency uh, to, to a degree and independent of other changes upstream as long as you have enough headroom. And Joe, can you comment on the 8307, the, log, the use of the log amp in such a feedback loop is going to provide what, a finer granularity of, uh, of control for that feedback loop? Yeah, it's a, um, it is a, indeed a, a logarithmic uh, detector that um, is reasonably, um, reasonably stable and predictable. Uh, would be a good detector for an application like this. Perhaps overkill, there are some cheaper ones that could do the same job. But as opposed to using a diode detector, which, um, which could vary, whose characteristics could vary, um, particularly with temperature, and uh, might have a, a minimum drop to it, uh, a log detector chip is very good for um, precision uh, RF level measurements and could be a good uh, good choice for something like a, the uh, detector in the uh, in an ALC or a levels, level calibrating uh, application. The one downside of using the, um, the MIMIC chip, at least with our um, implementation here, is that... Um, that would be only used as long as the MIMIC chip were in line. And um, for the lower signal levels, um, at least in, in the reference design, we don't have, we have the MIMIC chip switched out. So its capability would not be usable there. Okay. Okay, that's understandable. And also, kind of, why don't you write yourself a, a note to self in your design notebook um, that we might want to consider using a log detector uh, chip such as this or the, the lesser expensive one when we're trying to control the ALC and the uh, uh, the level with the ALC circuit in the DDS. So maybe that's something as an aspect that we really uh, haven't considered. It might solve a problem elsewhere. Okay, um, why don't we wrap it up here for tonight and uh, kind of toss it out one more time for questions across the uh, across the bow. Anybody have any Anything that they wanted to bring up relative to the entire talk, the entire episode, relative to signals or flexible signal sources, and uh, some of the techniques that we used, some of the techniques that uh, are the chips that we used in order to determine uh, uh, the right, uh, develop the right frequency that we want to be using, the ways that we are attenuating it, and some of the things that we are concerned with from a design standpoint along the whole route. I mean, the nature of this discussion is analyze this, and uh, I'm wondering if anybody has any questions about the analysis. Go ahead. All right, I guess we must have it nailed, Joe. Um, and um, I think uh, I think the topics are pretty pretty. Uh, uh, the topic here is pretty solid. So, Joe, why don't you take us home and close up shop here. doesn't have to be a too long of a winded uh, summary, but uh, we'll just uh, kind of tie the ribbons. Okay, George, yeah. Um, certainly, and I see another signal source you have um, in the final part of the whiteboard that you didn't mention, but uh, we can talk about that offline. You know, what we, uh, what we talked about tonight was um, some signal sources that are particularly used, uh, signal sources 
signal generators as used by hams and homeowners. Uh, we showed uh, some examples of a number of them, uh, tried to uh, distinguish between signal sources and signal generators to um, characterize them individually. And uh, we spoke of a reference design that we're considering for a, um, a signal source that uh, combines some characteristics of um, really good signal generators with some um, uh, digital synthesizers, some fractional nth synthesizers, and some um, chips used uh, in the uh, cell phone industry to come up with kind of a, um, an in-between device that has some of the best characteristics of both simple signal uh, sources and some more sophisticated signal generators to, um, to operate and, and give a, uh, another choice for um, the workbench to give uh, quite a bit of utility for uh, RF testing. Um, it has been uh, conjectural to some extent, tried to give a little meat to give a taste for what goes into something like this and the sorts of considerations you have to uh, take into account in coming up with uh, something useful. And uh, if all goes well, we hope to uh, hope to come to fruition with it, and uh, or someday have a uh, a real uh, real operating base to uh, to showcase uh, probably on a chat with a designer session. Alrighty, well, thank you, Joe, and thank you everybody here for showing up this evening, the first episode of 2013. Um, per usual, Joe and I have a good time in, in working on some of these uh, these uh, episodes and the creation of them and the background for them and and hope that you do too um, whether you're listening live or via Memorex and we appreciate you attending the live. Be sure to check out the references. We, we think that they're very, very cool. There's a, a good one from Elecraft, of course, about the XG3. Take a peek at that and uh, uh, the the background on fractional end synthesis is just fabulous. Um, again, the more you understand something, the uh, the more enjoyable it is, I think, because you understand how it works. So um, we'll see you all back here in two weeks, two weeks from tonight, and pretty shortly we'll have the podcast posted here, and you can check it out or refer to refer it to your friends or whatever if you want to listen to it again, download it for the archive, uh, local archives, whatever it may be. So. This is uh, George, N2APB, and Joe, N2CX, saying 73 all, and uh, we'll see you next time on Chat with the Designers. Bye-bye now. Yeah!